Hi and welcome to Arrow's coverage of Infosec 2019. We are once again asking the hard questions of our vendors, finding out what their priorities are into 2020 and how they intend to help our channel to develop to address the ever-changing security landscape. We hope you enjoy this series, and if so, please subscribe. Okay, and welcome to uh, Arrow Bandwidth at InfoSec. And um, I am sitting here with a long-term listener, repeat caller, I hope long-term <laughs> listener, Peter Carlyle, formerly of, formerly of, formerly of, now of Encipher. I think you, uh, every time we interview you, there's a new acquisition or a, a, new, a new part of the business. Well, there's always something going on. We like to uh, we like to be vibrant and <laughs> reinventing ourselves. No, this uh, this last uh, year has been um, has been a momentous one for us actually, with some with some amazing changes, uh, which uh, obviously I'd like to uh, I'd like to, to fill the fill the folks in on. Um, Fantastic. If we go back to uh, gosh December uh, 2017, that was when Talos announced its intention to buy Jamalto, which was yep. a big uh, big four. Huge. Four billion plus acquisition, and of course, with that came SafeNet, and of course, SafeNet and Talisy Security, long-term competitors. Um, and it became increasingly obvious as that deal progressed that there were concerns about um, um, market domination for in the general-purpose HSM space. Because if you put the SafeNet, Luna, and the uh, and the Enshield together, you have about seventy percent of the market covered there. Yeah, I was going to say between. I mean, going back to the basics, when, when we first saw that announcement, it sort of screamed Talis, Vormetric, East, uh, Talis East Security, um, Jamalto, SafeNet. That was the entire encryption market. Yes, yes. Done. Well, well, a, well a, big, a, a big chunk of it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, a big chunk of it. So the um, Department of Justice, uh, European Commission, you know, they, they both had a good look at it, uh, did some due diligence and said, you know, we, we can't put these these two products in the same stable, it will dominate the market, it will take away consumer choice, it will potentially drive up pricing. So the decision was made in the autumn of, uh, of last year to, to carve out um, the Enshield product, and we decided to relaunch that under the brand name of Encipher, because Encipher is a well-known well brand name. Uh, Encipher was the, the, the name behind the Enshield product in the early days before Talos acquired it, and yep. uh, still a name that seems to resonate with a lot of people, because I was, I was really, um, pleasantly surprised with the, with the warmth of the the welcome back message that I got from lots of people. Oh, it's great to see the Encipher brand back in the in the market. We missed it. That's fantastic. It's, it's been it's been really uh, really quite remarkable. So we uh, we spun out of um, of Talos and, and began operating independently in January this year. Technically the seventh of January, and we're just about to complete our second quarter uh, in that new format. And uh, I have to say it's been uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, and I'm running worldwide sales now, and I've, I've done. Uh, more than my fair share of travelling in the last six months. <laughs> I've, I've been in Australia and Hong Kong and uh, Tokyo. Oh, wow, some and proper, proper travelling and, and US West Coast, and I'm I'm off down to South America in a couple of weeks. So uh, yes, global means global in my book. There's no, uh, no yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean there. <laughs> I know what you mean there. Um, so which bits of the Talos portfolio went with you? Did, did the entire Talos security brand, or was it just the HSM? So did Volmetric? No, 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 no. So, so, so Volmetric is uh, is living somewhere in the new uh, Talos Gemalto mashup. Uh, we effectively have the Enshield product and everything associated with that in okay, terms of fantastic. software and consulting and everything else. Um, and we run our 
engineering center of excellence out of Cambridge in, uh, in, in the UK and all of our engineering expertise is now there. Um, so uh, it, it makes it a much leaner, um, more straight business more straightforward business for us to for us to manage. We don't have perhaps some of the uh, debates and challenges about where are we going to put our investment dollars this uh, yeah, this year. Um, it's 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 all focused on uh, enhancing and developing that uh, that Enshield uh, product line. Uh, channel, of course, unbelievably important to us. Yeah. Uh, because uh, I mean, I have a a, a great um, global sales force, and you know, we have we have staff in around 30 countries worldwide uh, but nonetheless we have customers in in over 170 countries worldwide so you know we can't cover that that network and that and the logistics of all that and the languages and the various bits and pieces without a really really strong channel network so the so channel is um is incredibly uh, important to us. More than 90% of our of our business uh, in EMEA this year so far has gone via the channel, and we're seeing huge growth in uh, in in the uh, in the channel in the Americas and the Asia Pac region. So we're so Fantastic. we're really driving driving that channel message forward. So, I suppose one of the questions that um, we're trying to ask as many of our our partners that come on or vendors that come on as possible is what does your market look like today? Because obviously encryption. Um, used to be a very dark art um i think sort of mainly people utilized encryption and those types of products mm -hmm. as a sort of a last well uh, deeply embedded into applications i mean what does the encryption world look like today and what is what is your sort of what do you guys get involved in most as far as solutions are concerned uh well so solutions um very interesting i think we're seeing a great diversification in terms of use cases now. I mean, if I go back uh, a, a few years, it seemed that it was very much a finance and government thing, you know, and everybody accepted the fact that, that banks would use some form of encryption um, and card transactions and governments would want to encrypt things. Uh, and, and there was less interest outside of that. But we're seeing huge growth in um, the medical um, vertical, for example, with the rise of uh, the Internet of Things and the, the number of intelligent devices now being used in hospitals, things like robots um, carrying out surgery, which, of course... Um, oh, that's pretty cool. Not, not, not actually wearing masks and gowns, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's looking like a, a, a robot arm, perhaps, that's, that's doing a, a microscopic piece of heart surgery. And, of course, that, that device needs to be programmed with the, the patient information, um, patient's medical records. The, you know, uh, so you so have all of these connected devices now proliferating in hospitals, which carry and transmit patient data. So there's a huge requirement for, um, for data security management, of, of which, of course, encryption plays, plays a big part. Same uh, manufacturers now warming up to the fact that uh, you know, a good way to protect their intellectual property uh, is, is through use of encryption and uh, the retail market, where um, you know, typically you'll see retailers with their, um, their, their, their loyalty schemes carrying staggering amounts of customer data um, and wanting to, uh, to, to encrypt. So we're, we're definitely seeing it spreading out into more and more, more vertical markets. Yep. So how, how are you actually taking, cause I, I, forgive me if I'm very wrong here, but I was always under the impression that when we're talking about encryption in, in that world, we're talking about massive pieces of, you know, that big iron technology as it's sort of commonly known as in the data center. You know, how does that translate down to, to IoT and sort of the smaller, more um, distributed world? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, around, uh, it's around the management of, of keys. So, so protection of and, uh, and, and management of keys. Uh, and, and whilst there are software solutions available for, uh, for key management, it seems, um, you know, fairly well documented now that, uh, that hardware is, is a much more robust 
way of, of, of protecting those keys. So, so, so key management is, is, is the primary use case that we see. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's effectively like uh, protecting physical keys uh, in the same way that you know, people, uh, people fish through uh, letterboxes for car, for car keys. You know? people, uh, people fish online for, uh, for virtual keys. So, uh, so management of keys, protection of keys, uh, absolutely fundamental to what we do. Okay, because I, I must admit, if we look at IoT as, as a classic example, I mean, it's hugely uh, important part of our business today. Yes. With, with the global components element, element of our, our organization. And um, security has long been one of these things that I think has been very neglected, shall we say. Okay. Um, so it's really interesting. That's why I sort of come back onto this topic around yes. around IoT and, and how actually we can bring these enterprise sort of trusted players in the market to bear in inside of what is otherwise a, a relatively sort of small space and, and how we can actually utilize technologies like yours to actually provide this really high levels of security and, and capability into products that, you know, cost, you know, I think where I'm trying to get to is in the past, the products that you guys have supported are very, very high value, but now your products are helping to support very low value products, albeit thousands of those low well, early products. Mi millions, indeed, billions. Millions, yeah, precisely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been so many uh, horror stories um, about poorly designed IoT devices that there was the uh, the thermometer in the fish tank in the casino that uh, everybody seems to... I haven't heard this one. Yes, which was, which was um, you know, helping to steal from the casino. There's the, there's the cheap uh, kettle that uh, you can turn on and off via Bluetooth that enables people to uh, access your, uh, your Wi-Fi and get all your passwords. <laughs> so so the, there's, there's a proliferation of, of, of these devices. And, and of course, we, we love the, the functionality and the convenience that these things give us. But there's also a um, you know, more serious side. We touched on hospitals. And as I say, we have uh, devices now monitoring patient vital signs and carrying out surgical procedures. And they're all effective. Uh, you know, badged as IoT. Yeah. So, so being able to identify um, and and sign effectively allow allow those uh, those IoT devices to identify themselves and be validated and and and, and signed uh, is, is critical, and that's where we're able to uh, we're able to add value. So, on to uh, another topic. Obviously, encryption is has been one of the sort of key um, technologies that has been flagged as as important for GDPR. Indeed. And for privacy specifically and I providing. Think I think it's Article 38. <laughs> that says, there uh, you go. That says uh, encryption is one of the best things you can do to ensure compliance, or words to that effect. So what have you seen change? So, I mean, we are now, you know, albeit this is going to date this podcast rather neatly, um, <laughs> we are just over one year into GDPR in 2019. I know. Um, what's changed? I mean, because obviously we... I think the last time we did this podcast, we were just either on the cusp of or just after GDPR had come into action last that's year. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, what have you seen change? What, what, what does a year look like in, in GDPR terms? So in, in some ways, I can understand why, why there is a school of thought that says nothing's changed because we're still seeing breaches happening on a, an ever-increasing scale, an industrial scale, and there's, there's headlines uh, every, every day that there's been an, another large-scale uh, breach um, but I think um, you know and we haven't we haven't yet seen any big fines um, levied and I think that's that still that still has to happen yet we haven't seen the teeth of GDPR yet so I so I'm not convinced that um, the, the legislation is changing um, behavior within organizations but I think what I am seeing is a change in in consumer consumer behavior 
and um, the, the way that consumers are starting to think about it. Because we all, we all became much, much more aware of data protection legislation because of GDPR, because everybody uh, got those hundreds and thousands of emails from all the different companies they'd ever, they'd ever shared some data with saying, we have your data, can we keep it? I mean, even my, my, uh, my, my wife is the, is the clerk to the parish council in a little village that, I, that we live in. And uh, even she's had to go on, uh, on GDPR training. And um, wow, really? even even the email that gets sent out to you know fifty people in the village every every month has to be GDPR compliant. And you know she's had to you know she's been cautioned that you know if you include people's private email addresses in a visible form when you send this out, you're violating GDPR. So so um, everyone um, has become much more um, savvy about all this. And I think customers or consumers are now asking questions. Well, if I open a bank account with you, can you give me some reassurances that you're going to look after my data? If I if I take up a loyalty uh, card with you, uh, Mr. Supermarket, uh, are you going to protect my personal data? And it's starting to become a key part of the buying uh, process and, 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 and the buying choice. And I think that is perhaps more likely to influence organizational behavior than, than the threat perhaps of, of, of legal action because we're seeing customers prepare to walk away from a business and effectively spend their money elsewhere because of that concern about data protection. And I think that's a, perhaps an unintended consequence of, 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 of the way GDPR has rolled out. Interesting. So you mentioned um, right at the start of that about we're not seeing the end of breaches. Now, I don't, think, I don't think anyone ever expected to see the end of breaches, but here's my question to you. Are we seeing the value of the breach go down? And what I mean by that is because of GDPR, albeit people aren't making their systems more secure, but are they taking people's privacy more seriously and actually are the thieves getting away with valuable data? Or getting, away, getting away with less, perhaps because data is being encrypted yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. I think there is some, some evidence of that. Uh, I, I think also the fact that organizations are definitely abiding by the uh, the, the re requirement to report as well. We're definitely seeing that. Yeah. There's been some... And do you think that's why we're seeing more breaches? Because actually people are reporting more? So, so I think perhaps we're hearing about more. I yeah. mean, I, I mean, I, I mean you know, British, British Airways was a very high profile one last year. Uh, you know, I, I would question whether that would ever have come to light had we not, um, you know, had, had there not been a requirement for them to report. Yeah. And I think there's one or two others we can put into that category. So perhaps we're hearing more because organizations are disclosing. And, and I think there is some evidence that uh, less data is being harvested because organizations are doing more behind the scenes. So yeah, I think those are, those are valid points. So next question. Um, you said earlier on that uh, companies, um, there hasn't been any major fines yet. Is that because GDPR people are on the whole doing what they should be doing and therefore the um, independent the IDC not IDC the mm, yes yeah um, just saying you know what you're doing your best we're sort of bedding GDPR in you know we'll, we'll give people some leniency or the flip side GDPR is just going to be so difficult to take to a court of law and actually prove beyond doubt that someone was completely negligent in all of the bits and bobs that actually it's just too complicated to actually enact and, and fine successfully. Yeah, well, I, th I, mean, I think um, uh, it, it's always been a lengthy process to, uh, to apply um, the law and to apply fines in these situations. I mean, we've seen over the years, even with the, the previous legislation, there'd often be a lag of, of perhaps three years be be between something being investigated and, and, and fines being levied, even though the, the, the fines were smaller than anything that we could potentially see under GDPR. So I think there's a timing element to this. Uh, we're only a year in, as, as, as you, uh, you pointed out. Um, 
there's been an element of um, you know giving organisations time to comply and time to step up. Um, obviously, there have been a number of breaches reported. There are a number of breaches being investigated. So I suspect we probably will start to see some uh, some financial penalties imposed, but it might be another six to 12 months down the line before the cycle completes to enable that to happen. But you do think that we GDPR will be something that we can actually contextualize or quantify in court? Uh, yes, I do. I yeah. do. Yeah. Not yeah. me to put you on the side. That's a quite, quite a, uh, legal, that's a, a legal deep, question. A deep there, yeah. question. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's something though that it needs to be because if you don't, you know, I think one of the problems we've we've had with GDPR, especially when we've had our you know other customers and other vendors mm. sort of talking about it, is it, it is it was fantastically complex. The the guidelines were incredibly um, ambiguous. Yes. On on how um, and what quantified, you know, being. GDPR compliant. Um, a lot of it was predominantly around sort of awareness and training for your staff, awareness and training, you know, of your to your customers downstream, um, and then obviously, you know, we, we've had we had discussions internally in Arrow as to how we went about actually implying GDPR. You know, we've got marketing, we've got human resources, we've got you know our customers downstream. You know, did we turn around and just? go brute force with GDPR and block everyone's USB ports so no one could share any data and no one could have any apps locally on their um, system so everything was remote or or did we go down a, a slight so there's been a lot of um, a lot of discussion as to how we actually implement it and I think true it's been it's been a real um, journey uh, in our world as well but you know I, I I think if I'm brutally honest talking from David Fern's opinion not Arrow's opinion could we hand on heart say that we are globally GDPR compliant, and I say globally because obviously we store European customers' information in North America as yes, well as in Europe. Yes, yes. Yeah, are we? No idea. But does that differ so very much from a whole lot of other legal areas that organisations have to comply? You know, when you're talking about True. you know international tax laws or uh, you know intellectual property rights, or you know, there's a uh, these things tend to be complicated, and uh, you know court cases, uh, uh, legal actions tend to be complicated and take a long time. So I, I, I guess we, we shouldn't really necessarily think that you know, something as complex as data protection is going to be any different. So I would never expect it to be particularly black and white. Um, obviously, organizations will, will try and push back on, uh, on, on, on um, uh, potential breach, breach scenarios, as they would probably push back on lots of other things. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I don't think anybody wants to be publicly dragged through the mud. I don't think anybody wants to get caught up in that. It's, no, it's bad. No. It's, bad, it's bad publicity. As I touched on, uh, consumers are much more savvy to it. So uh, uh, so, so I think there's, there's, there's enough there to encourage organizations to change, be change behavior. But I do anticipate that, that there, there will be a, uh, a, a financial casualty or two before, you know, probably before the next anniversary. All right. Well, we will see you for that anniversary. <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> now, more importantly, and obviously, <laughs> more importantly, obviously, what the bandwidth listeners really want to know is how's the band going? Uh, slow train, yes. So, uh, um, well, the, the the second album is coming out this summer. Fantastic. Uh, and it's uh, it's all self-penned original original songs. So I've been flexing my songwriting skills. So that's going to be coming out in the summer. And we're playing. Uh, we've got a very busy festival calendar. We're at the uh, Upton Blues Festival, and the Swanage Blues Festival, the Word Up Festival, all, all sorts of things. So that's uh, going from strength to strength. Fantastic. Well, look, Peter, <laughs> another year, another fantastic podcast. Thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. 
Please come back again next week for the next instalment of our exciting coverage from InfoSec 2019. See you then.